Uh, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Um, I am getting ready to go on a two-week trip to Korea with my wife. Uh, in four days, so really excited about that. Uh, so my wife and I, we are currently making all sorts of preparations uh, for our trip, including visiting some family in New York to uh, actually bring, uh, get things from them to bring to other family members in Korea. And uh, when we were driving around New York, which is my hometown, I laughed uh, as I saw an old bowling alley that I grew up going to. And I don't know why I laughed, I shouldn't laugh, um, because people still bowl. Uh, just because I don't bowl uh, doesn't mean that all bowling alleys in existence should go, you know, out of business, right? People are really into it. So some people are really into it. And, you know, more power to you. Much respect if you're able to bowl well. I cannot. Uh, but I did learn that people were really into bowling a few years ago that when I was attending a church, a new church that I was attending and. Uh, some people, they, they saw me and they said, hey, Vic, you, you know how to bowl, right? And I said, yeah, I know how to bowl. And they said, great. We got seven. We need an eighth for tonight. Can you come with us and go bowling? And I said, sure. You know, sounds like a good time. And uh, I expected that it would be a casual evening of bowling. Um, they expected something very different. Because when I got there, I realized that none of us were going to have a good time. Um, they... They brought their own shoes. Uh, they had their own, you know, bowling balls. They had the towel to do this with so to clean. And I rented all my equipment. And uh, needless to say that they were furious that I was terrible at bowling. Uh, and in turn, I became furious at them for expecting that, you know, I would bowl more than an 80, right? And uh, that, that's just, I'm, I'm not good at bowling. And so needless to say, Neither one of our expectations were met that evening. Uh, not my expectations to have a good time, neither their expectations to 
have a competitive bowling evening with someone who rented their shoes. All of us this morning have experienced something like this. Uh, not in the bowling alley, maybe, but the bitterness of unmet expectations. Uh, it could be in your relationships at home, uh, with loved ones, your family members, uh, in the workplace, expecting to get a raise or a promotion and it not happening. We've all, at one point in our lives, have experienced how bitter it is to have our expectations not met. But what about when it comes to our expectations of who Jesus is? Of what we are to get out of our relationship with our Heavenly Father? What, what expectations do we have of Jesus this morning? What do you know about our Savior? And what happens when these are not met? It's my hope that through our text this morning in John chapter 6, we're going to see that as we come and encounter the living Jesus, our expectations of him are not only corrected, but they're extended beyond what we could have imagined, beyond our limited assumptions as we witness Jesus in his glory as the bread of life, the giver of life for his people. So as we look at this account, this uh, recording of this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, John begins his account, because uh, we actually see this miracle recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. We see John beginning by describing that a large crowd was following Jesus after he had crossed over the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. John notes the reason why the crowd is following Jesus, right? He says that they had saw all the miracles and signs that Jesus had performed on the sick, right? So they wanted to see more, right? They said, we're going to follow this guy. He's doing all kinds of cool, crazy stuff that we've never seen, and we want to see more and learn more about who this man is. Verse 4 gives us uh, the, I guess, the historical you know, time stamp of the time of Passover, and uh, as Jesus looks to the crowd, he asks Philip to test him. He says, where are we going to buy bread so that all these people can eat? From John chapter 1, we learn that Philip was from the immediate area that they were in. And so, you know, maybe it was, the, it was a good person to ask, right? It's like uh, if someone was from this area and I just moved, I say, hey, where can I get a really good uh, sandwich? Or, you know, where can I find really good uh, I don't know, Asian food or something like that, and someone who is familiar with the area might know. And so Philip, racking his brain, thinking of all the local spots that they could buy food on the cheap, maybe get a bargain here or there, he says to Jesus, 200 denarii. It would not be enough for everyone just to even get a little taste of bread. Now putting it into context, a denarii was... Uh, about a day's wage for a laborer. So 200 denarii would have been about uh, eight months worth of wages of someone's salary. And he says eight months of someone's salary cannot actually feed all the people that are here. And so it gives you a picture about how many people of disciples we're dealing with. And so we see that Jesus tests Philip, and he fails, right? Philip had witnessed all these miracles, and Yet he fails to recognize that Jesus was able to feed the people, right? Uh, so as not to leave uh, Philip as the only one who flunks this test, we see Andrew uh, piping up, and after taking a look at 
who's around in the crowd, what does he say? He says, and exercises a lack of faith, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And then he insults this man's lunch, right, this little boy's lunch. What are they for so many people, right? It's not, not, not just that this boy offered his lunch, but he has to insult it. So he fails too, right? Not the boy, but Andrew also fails in, uh, in his lack of faith, recognizing that, oh, man, we don't know what to do. Uh, failing to see that Jesus can actually feed the people. In response to all these poor answers, Jesus has the people sit down, and John notes that the number is 5,000. And uh, it's important to note that right, it's only 5,000 men here. And so in other accounts, and scholars have looked and have estimated anywhere between 10 to 15, and if you're, you know, really want to go upwards and really estimate, some even say 20,000 people, a whole stadium full of people looking to be fed by Jesus. And after giving thanks, he distributes the bread, the fish, and John tells us that the people ate as much as they wanted, right? They eat so much, they eat their fill that to the point where they couldn't eat any more were 12 baskets full of leftovers are then collected. And then we see some good news, right, in, in verse 14, right? Now, something very interesting. We see that in response, the people, uh, they, they respond positively, right? They actually come to a realization of who this Jesus was, Right, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses, as he's giving the law to the second generation of people who are about to enter into the, wilder, uh, the promised land to claim the land that was promised to them, he writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from me, from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. And so as the people are looking ahead to this prophet, and as Jesus comes and performs these miracles... They say and exclaim to one another, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, this long-expected savior, right? From the time of the garden, they would look ahead to the day when God would provide one person, one prophet, one king who would come and make all things new again. And here the people are witnessing Jesus and said, yes, this is indeed the prophet who comes into the world. Well, how does Jesus respond? Up to this point, things seem to be going pretty well, right? Jesus is doing all these great things. A huge crowd is inspired by what he's doing. They follow him. Right? Oh, well, there's a problem, though. There's no food, but don't worry, right? He uses it as a teaching moment to test his disciples, to increase their faith, to feed the people. The crowd is now in love with him, recognizing him for who he is, a prophet greater than Moses, the promised Messiah who would restore God's kingdom here on earth, their Savior. And we see all of this. And they come to verse 15, and Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdraws himself alone. And this is odd, right? Because when we think about it, looking back, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and if you're not a Christian, right, you, you, you know Jesus came to be king. Right? Didn't he come to be king? Right? Even at the end of the Bible, at the end of this great book, chapter 19 in Revelation, doesn't you know, 
Jesus come armed with the word of the sword of his mouth and have tattooed on his leg, king of kings, lord of lords, right? It's a weird thing to get tattooed on if you don't think you're going to be king, right? Didn't Jesus come to fulfill all that the prophets had spoken about? Like Daniel, when he witnessed the son of man who was given all dominion, glory, that all people would serve him very much coming to be a king, right? If Jesus came to be king, if the people perceived him to be the king and the prophet to come into the world and wanting to make him king, what's the problem here? Why is it that Jesus assumes correctly and then withdraws? It's almost as if, you know, like you, uh, I don't know, you talk to me at coffee hour and you say, you know, Victor, I've been, uh, you, you know, I've been looking for work, and I say, yeah, I know, it's been, it's been hard. And so I've been, you know, I have a very long list of very specific things on my, uh, you know, of what I have in mind of a place where I want to work. It's very specific. It's very unique. Not a lot of places are offering, uh, you know, a job like this. And I say, yes, I know it's hard. And then you say, well, you know, good news. I, I found a place that's got everything that I'm looking for. I went through three interviews, and I said, great. They said, you say, they offered me the job, and I said, even better. Wow, what a, what a great story of such a unique circumstance of a very unique job that only you were looking for in this one place that's hiring. When do you start? You say, start? You know, I turned that job down. I perceived that they were going to offer me the job, and even though it's everything that I wanted, everything that, oh, it checked every little thing on my list, I perceived that they wanted to give me that job. So I went and withdrew a little and just spent some time by myself, right? It's a, it's a weird thing that we see here in verse 15. Why does Jesus withdraw by himself when the people are, are wishing him to be somebody that he came to be? When we look closer at the text, we actually see that although it seems as though these people have good intentions in making Jesus the king, it's fueled by all kinds of mixed motivation, or they actually miss the point of why Jesus had come in the first place. We see this first warning and red flag in verse 2 that John explains that a large crowd follows. Why? Because of the signs. Right? They just wanted to see more. And this is reminiscent in chapter 2 when Jesus was in Jerusalem. Many are actually believing in his name, saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus did not give himself to them. Because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they only had love for the signs, for the benefits, and none for the benefactor himself. They had no interest in discipleship. And here we see a very similar crowd uh, looking at Jesus, doing all these miraculous things and wanting to see more, not out of their love for who Jesus was, but out of love for what he was doing and what they could benefit from it. Well, in, in verse 4, the Passover mention gives us the, you know, the time of when this was happening. It also uh, gives us a bit of a window into the political climate uh, of the time. And we remember that the Passover was a meal that was celebrated by God's people that celebrated God's faithfulness in Egypt as he delivered God's people from the house of slavery from the land of Egypt. Every year they would come together and have this meal and each element they would take the time to describe what it represented and how it represented how God had been so faithful in rescuing 
his people and establishing his people as a kingdom, a holy priesthood of his people. And every year as they would celebrate this, they not only looked back at God's faithfulness in delivering them from Egypt, but they looked ahead to that coming Messiah and said, who will deliver us from Rome? As Moses delivered them from Egypt, they looked and through their own selfish motivations, looked to a Messiah to save them from Roman occupation. So although they celebrated something that happened in the past, this event, this uh, celebration was charged with all kinds of uh, nationalistic and patriotic zeal. It's like uh, if you're into the 4th of July, some people get really into it, right? It's the 4th of July would pale into, in comparison to what uh, happens during the Passover in this pride that people felt over their identity as the people of God. And so this is who they thought Jesus was coming to be as the prophet who would come into the world. They wanted to make Jesus into some kind of political figure in their own image that would, benef- that would benefit what they wanted in life, that would advance their agenda for liberation from the Roman Empire. And yet, in the face of the people's misguided expectations and shallow reasons for following Jesus, we see in these 15 verses, in great detail, the king that Jesus actually came to be. When we take a closer look at these verses, we see that John actually includes some detail that all three other gospel writers uh, leave out, that the cakes that this boy had were barley. And this isn't a throwaway verse. Um, If you were reading this at the time, you would recognize that barley was the lowest quality of bread that anyone could have at the time. In fact, if you had a bar- uh, barley loaf on you, more often than not, it, it's not as though you were eating it ironically. Like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I like fast food. I, I like McDonald's. You know, it's not that, like, that's all I can afford. But, uh, you know, it's, I know it's bad for me. But it's, so it's not like that. Someone's, you know, carrying around this barley cake. It's like, ah, I know it's bad for me. But, you know, I enjoyed it. It's what I had growing up. If you had a cake of barley, it meant you were poor. The provisions were meager. Five loaves didn't mean that you had these, you know, huge, I don't know, cartoonish loaves that you got to carry in, you know, wicker baskets on your bicycle, you know, you know, bicycling through France or whatever. No, these, these were like, uh, I don't know, tasty cakes. I'm trying to think of something relevant or something. It's something small, five. You can fit them in your pocket. And John includes this and shows to demonstrate something here, that through this meager meal, through these small provisions, this very unexpected ingredient, this terrible meal, that Jesus was going to use it, the Lord was going to use it to feed not just 5,000, but 10, 15,000, enough so that people could have their fill, enough to have 12 baskets left over. And in this way, this number 12 also isn't random. Jesus is demonstrating that the way that he would meet the needs of God's people, 12 tribes, 12 baskets, meeting them completely was through the most unexpected of ways. As he feeds the people with this unexpected meal, it serves as a foil 
and almost as an example of what was to come in his own life. That in the most unexpected of ways, we see this lowly servant of Jesus dying in order to feed God's people, in order that we might have everlasting life, life to the fullest. And we see parallels throughout five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? It almost echoes the words in John 1. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We see it, the connections through and through. And we see it even in the description of the grass. When we look at the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a description of the place that it was a desolate place. It was evening. This is a desolate place. The day is over. Matthew in Mark, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Luke, he says, let us send the people away to find lodging and get provision for we are in a desolate place. And yet, what does John record? There is much grass that the people can sit. Here we see that even in the setting John is portraying Jesus to be the king that not only feeds the physical needs of his people, but has come to make all things right again. The king that was promised in Psalm 72 where they, they would sing, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that waters the earth. Here we see in John 6, Jesus is that king to make all things right, to be that bread of life, to offer himself as that meal that we might find life. And as you read through the rest of chapter 6, we see that these 15 verses actually set up a discourse that Jesus goes into in depth to show that he is the bread of life. And as we come every morning, every morning on Sunday and partake in this meal, that's what we're reminded of of Jesus. I want to ask you this morning, what are the expectations that we might have of our Savior this morning? For those of you that might not know Jesus, you might know so little about him. You might have come to church as a child, uh, may have come at the invitation of your friends, but you might not know much, but what do you expect from him? I can promise you that if you don't know him and you meet this Jesus, by faith, you're going to meet the giver of life. You're going to meet the only one who can make things right in this world, who has come to wipe away every tear, to bring about his kingdom, to lead us to a place where sadness and tears are no more. For those of us who have grown up in the church, who are mature in our faith, what have we come to expect from Jesus? How have we let the world affect what we come to expect in our faith? Like I said, there are no throwaway verses in the Bible. And I don't think it's a coincidence that right in the beginning, John describes that this Sea of Galilee was also named the Sea of Tiberias. That was a pagan name. Herod Antipas dedicated a city on the shore to Tiberius Caesar. And after a while, people started to know it by name. And I, think, I don't think that's a coincidence that he described that. Because at every level, John is showing us that the people here are being affected by their own worldly expectations. 
of what Jesus was going to accomplish in their lives. And they missed the point that as the king, he didn't come to meet every one of their physical needs, to be a king in their image, but he came to be the bread of life. He says later in verse 35 in the same chapter, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Speaking figuratively there. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come every Sunday and encounter this real Jesus, as we have been united to this real Jesus by faith, we come and witness his glory. For those in John 6, they saw him perform a miracle, but as we are united to him, we see him face to face in his full glory as the as the resurrected Christ who died for our sins in order that we might have life. And this is the king that we need. No matter what expectations we have of Jesus, this is the king that we need, a king who is our savior, who would answer the call to save all of us from the bondage of sin and death. This is the king that I need. In humbleness, who took on the form of a servant, to live a perfect life in obedience to the Father, a life that I could never have lived, to die for my own selfish desires, to clothe me in his perfect humility instead of all the stained clothes that I try to put on myself, tainted with my own desires for what I want in this world, for how I believe things should be in this life. There's no such king like this, the king of Israel. Not in the Old Testament, not David. We have to wait until Jesus to find this king that we need. A king whose battle cry was, let this cup pass from, what, from me. Not what I will, but instead what you will. A king who always obeyed his father and who emptied himself of his own glory in order to save you and me. This is the Jesus that we need every Sunday. This is the Jesus that we have a relationship with intimate relationship with by our faith. And as we come to the table this morning, we're reminded of that. That as Christians, the Lord never promises us that we'll never have any problems in this life. But the Lord promises us Christ himself. And as we're reminded of who he is as that bread of life, and as we're strengthened at this table, and we're reminded that though we experience problems, though we experience the hardships of life, we're never doing it alone. We're never called to do it alone, but instead are strengthened by this bread of life, by this meal, by Jesus himself. So brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, as we close our time today, I want to leave with that question. What are we expecting from Jesus? If you don't know him, even if you do know him, how has what our own expectations of what we believe life should be for our own selves, for our families, how has that wrongly affected what we've come to assume Jesus will do in our lives? And as we come and share in this meal together, let's let those expectations be corrected. Let's be reminded of who Jesus is. Let's be reminded that he has not come to serve our needs, but instead he came as a servant in order to give us life, that we might follow in that same pattern of life as we look ahead to that last day where we're able to embrace him face to face.
that day will come where no more sadness, no more tears, and we can just worship God and give him the glory he deserves, sharing in that meal together with the saints from yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's the day I look forward to. But until that day comes, I'm comforted in knowing that I have this Jesus who has come as the bread of life for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that it's none other than your blood that saves us. We thank you that despite any wrong expectations that we might have, Lord, you come unaffected by all of that, and you've come to give us life, to increase our faith, to help us look beyond our own selfish desires, to look towards the heavenly things. Lord, forgive us for trying to make you to be someone that you're not. And Lord, continue to shape our wills, our minds, and our hearts in order that we might live lives pleasing to you. Strengthen us in this way, we ask. In Christ's name we pray.